For many, Good Friday. This was an infamous day, and history came and went really as any normal day. Rome had perfected and littered the known world with naked, bloody, tortured criminals and rebels. And so on this Friday, outside of Jerusalem, many watching only saw an execution. But clouded by the darkness of sin is actually an enthronement. And so when kings came to power, their reign was celebrated with a royal ceremony. It was even climaxed with a coronation. And yet this king, Jesus, this crucified king, was crowned with a crown of thorns. And so as he was lifted high on the cross, his enemies thought that they were delivering the final blow. Yet on this Good Friday, we want to slow down and look at Jesus' last seven words to see the crucified king and his cruciform kingdom and all its truth, beauty, and goodness. And as each speaker comes up and uh, shares a word about each of these words, afterwards we're going to extinguish one of the candles signifying Jesus' dark descent into the tomb. For on this night it had appeared that the light of the world had been overcome by darkness. And that the earth would forever be covered in shadow. And that death had had the final last word. But what looked like defeat was actually cosmic victory. And so our definitions in our day of power and might and glory, they're convoluted. And so they deceive us. And so it's going to be hard for us to see a king and a kingdom through the cross. But we must hold the tension in order to see the truth that the scriptures had prophesied of a reigning king and a suffering servant. And on the cross, these paradigms collide into a paradox. And so when we come to the cross on this Good Friday, we will see a new definition of power and might and glory forged. You see, on this Good Friday, yes, the light of the world was extinguished. Yes, the king of the cosmos was crushed. But in his death, He shined brighter than deep darkness and achieved victory over death. And so this theme of the crucified king captures the paradoxical nature of the Friday that Jesus died. We call this Good Friday, even though it's the darkest day in human history. Jesus' murderers would mock him as the king of the Jews. Yet through his death and resurrection, Jesus overcame the kingdom of darkness and established his kingdom of light. And the final battle is not won by the taking of life, but by the giving up of his life. And so with this foundation laid, let's turn our attention to the last seven words of Christ. Go ahead and have a seat as we do. And so as we come to the first word of Jesus on the cross, let's set the background. You see, at this point, Jesus has now been betrayed with a kiss by one of his closest friends, and he's been arrested on false charges. In fact, even one of his very best friends, one of his closest confidants, has now denied him three times. He's been stripped and shamed, beaten and bloodied and mocked and humiliated. At this point, three very quick ad hoc trials have taken place where they've sidestepped justice and due process. 
Jesus has now traded places with a known murderer named Barabbas. You see, the crowds would rather have a known terrorist walking through their streets than to have Jesus utter another word. He's carried his cross now only to be nailed to it in between two criminals. And as he's lifted up on this cross, imagine Jesus seeing the scene laid before him. And through the blood and the sweat and the tears, over here he sees soldiers gambling over his clothes. The crowds have gathered to come and stare and watch and witness this execution. And he can hear the rulers scoffing and taunting him. And at this point, what would you expect Jesus' first words to be? As I imagine it, I, I would expect him to say, Father, bring justice. Call the guilty to account. Break the arm of the evildoer. But no. Instead of a call for justice, he issues a plea of mercy and pardon, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And despite the horrendous agony of slow and sure death, Jesus asked the Father to forgive the friends who had just abandoned him in his hour of need. Jesus sought the mercy for the criminals on the cross who mocked him. Jesus pleads for pardon for the soldiers who have tortured and executed him. Jesus asks the Father to forgive the religious rulers of the day for killing their long-hoped-for Messiah. And not just for them. You see, Jesus was seeking mercy and grace, pardon and forgiveness for you and me. Just like Jesus had traded places with Barabbas, the known criminal, Jesus trades places with us. And so, my friends, can we be honest for just a moment on this Good Friday? Don't you know, don't you know in the depth of your soul that you're guilty before a holy God? I mean, you know that if all of your deeds and all of your thoughts were put on display, that you would have no defense. And Jesus is the crucified king who should be sitting in the judge's chamber to bring justice to the guilty. Jesus is the crucified king who's supposed to call the guilty to account. And Jesus is the crucified king who's supposed to break the arm of the evildoer. And yet he takes off his righteous robe and he takes a seat on the justice stand in the form of a cross. And in doing so, he takes the place of the guilty. And now, overlooking offense, he can't do that, right? Because to do so, to overlook offense, would mock justice and give the guilty cheap and ineffective grace. But our king, he is able to pardon the guilty and maintain justice because he bears the weight of the penalty for the guilty. And so in Jesus, justice is served. In Jesus, guilt is accounted for. In Jesus, evil is crushed. And in Jesus, sin is forgiving, is forgiven. All because the king is willing to trade places. And so because of the crucified king, we who are condemned can be approved. Because of the crucified king, we who are guilty can be pardoned. And because of the crucified king, we can be forgiven. As Jesus hangs on the cross, between two others sentenced to death, on crosses of their own, he's taunted by one. 
and we can understand why. See, Jesus can't control his own limbs because they're nailed to a cross. See, Jesus is bleeding to death, except that he'll die from lack of breath first. Jesus has claimed so many things to be true and with so much authority, yet now he doesn't have any. The attacks on Jesus seem right from this other man. What king worth his crown gets ruled over like this? What king gets nailed to a cross to die? It's difficult to imagine the weakness of Jesus being displayed any more fully than this. See, unlike Jesus, the man hurling insults while hanging next to him is guilty and is powerless. And the lies that he utters could not be any bigger. But the man on the other cross, another convict sentenced to death, steps in and tells the other man to be quiet. And as this man defends Jesus and then requests to be remembered in Jesus' kingdom, Jesus, clothed in all the bloody humility and weakness that the cross could offer, looks at the man who defends him and promises something that no one can promise when they're hanging on a cross. No one except the king of all. With his words to this criminal, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus shows that he's not a criminal being executed who needs pardon. Instead, he's the king. He's the king who extends pardon, not only in this world, but in the next. He's a king so noble, so sovereign, so merciful, so just, and so loving to his own that he humbly submits to judgment for their rebellion so that we don't have to. And in this moment, the weakest of moments for both of them, he gives this pardon to them. See, Jesus is no power, powerless rebel outcast banished to die on the outskirts of town. He's the king inviting a rebel into his kingdom and giving him the finest robes and loving him as his own forever. Jesus the one seemingly ruled over while hanging on the cross is really the king who rules over all things, including the cross that he hangs on so that you and I can be with him in paradise forever. With this third word, I want us to focus in on the masculine love of Jesus Christ. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Among the hundred thousand perfections that unite in the person of Jesus Christ, one of them is that Jesus is the archetype for holy masculinity. You might not be used to that word. Masculinity is the sacrificial taking up of responsibility for the good of others. It is being strong 
for the good of those that the Lord has put under your care. It is seeing to it that no matter the cost to yourself, they thrive. It is that holy collision of a tender heart and rugged hands. On the grandest of all scales, the cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest and the fiercest and the most definitive display of masculinity that the world has ever seen. On the cross, Jesus laid down his life for his bride in love to save and secure her forever. On the cross, Jesus took up the fight that we could not win. On the cross, Jesus took responsibility on himself for our sin so that we might be declared righteous. The Son of God dying on the cross is the epitome of masculine love. And so it is so fitting and so beautiful that from the cross, Jesus the man takes responsibility for the one woman left under his care, Mary, his mom, the widow. With everything else happening in this moment, all of the pain, all of the horror, all of those deep redemptive realities, Jesus the man sees to it that Mary, his mom, will be cared for. Imagine how loved Mary would have felt by this son in this moment. Bride of Christ, feel that love of Christ for you now. From about the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness blanketing the whole area. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at this moment, Jesus is bearing the sins of God's people. Sin demands death. And here Jesus has taken our place and he is experiencing the weight of that sin. He is in some mysterious way as he hangs suffering on on the cross, experiencing the separation from God the Father. The Father laid on him the sins of the world. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, he is taking on our sin. And he cries out with a loud voice. It's important for us to see there that when he cries out, it is not with a whimper or a moan the way most of us would cry out in our final breaths. No, he cries out with a loud voice because it's a voice of faith that even in this darkness and unbearable anguish, Jesus is still saying, my God, my God, even in the anguish and separation, he is still using the possessive my because Jesus clings to the Father by faith in this darkness. And it is with a loud voice because despite the suffering, Jesus is not confused or bewildered in this moment. He is, in fact, quoting from his Old Testament Bible, 
from the book of from the chapter of Psalm 22. And Jesus knows that this psalm ends in victory. It says that kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. So Jesus is taking our place and he is experiencing the separation and suffering that we should have suffered. And he is announcing with a loud voice that his God forsakenness is a witness to the world and all those watching that salvation is coming. He is the crucified king bearing the suffering of his people. In this fifth word, I want us to focus on the humanity of Jesus Christ. I'm thirsty. Jesus from Nazareth, who hung on Calvary's cross, was not some Olympian figure who appeared to be human, but really wasn't. He was fully God, yes, but he was also fully man. Very early in Christian history, there was a crew who denied that to be true. The evidence for Jesus' divinity was so clear that they assumed he couldn't possibly also be human. Maybe he was God with a little bit of skin on, like an artificial intelligence robot. Maybe he was somewhere between divine and human, like Zeus or Elrond, or Larry Bird, we would say, around here. Maybe he had some ancient CGI thing going on, but whatever he was, there was no way that he was one of us. But scripture is clear. Jesus didn't just seem to be one of us. He was one of us. Nowhere do you see this more clearly than in Jesus' passion. After he was beaten mercilessly by the soldiers, they had to conscript a man from the crowd to carry his cross the rest of the way hill because he was too weak to do it. He was one of us. When the Romans jammed the crown of thorns on his head and the thorns drove into the skin of his scalp, when the nails were driven through his wrists and his feet, as he lunged on the cross to breathe, Jesus felt all of that. He was one of us. As he hung on the cross, dehydrating rapidly, Jesus got thirsty. He was one of us. And then there's the most profound evidence of all. Jesus died on this night. He did not just seem to die. He did not sort of die. He did not halfway die. He did not kind of die. He did not die in a sense. At the cross, 
Jesus bled and he thirsted and he died just like you or I would have. Feel that tonight. And feel the gospel in that. We needed a Savior who would identify with us fully so that he might save us fully. This is what Jesus has done. As we come to this sixth word, let me set the scene again. It's now around noon, midday, when the sun shines brightest, and yet the scriptures tell us that darkness covered the land. Darkness is the physical sign of the world's lament. Luke's gospel describes this event by saying that the sun's light failed. See, the power of the sun could not hold back the darkness of God's judgment. And at this point, Jesus has now taken on the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And while this is incredibly good news for us, this is really bad news for Jesus. As the Son of God, the light of the world was extinguished. The sunlight could not pierce through the darkness of God's judgment over sin. And so the next three hours on the cross would be the most intense. You see, to feel the pain of sin and to feel the sting of death's curse entering into his body for the very first time, it far exceeded all of the beatings and the scourging. To be forsaken by the Father and to experience God's wrath and judgment for sin, that far exceeded the pain of the piercing of the nails and the asphyxiation and suffocation of crucifixion. And at 3 p.m., with his strength fading, he gathers himself for his last few words. In the final moments of his life, the overflow of his heart cried out in a loud voice. He's not incoherent. He spent his life saturating in the scriptures. And Psalm 31.5 comes out and he says these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And if you go home tonight and you look up this psalm, you'll see the next line. I imagine that he shouted out the first one and said this last part of the verse under his breath. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, O faithful God. You see, the crucified king gives up his life so that he can now offer life. When you look at kingdoms, most kings look for volunteers to give up their life to serve and save the kingdom. But not this king. The crucified king willingly lays down his life to save his kingdom. Jesus endured the full weight of God's judgment, and yet he never staggered in his faith and his commitment to the Father. It was the Father who had sent the Son into the world to die, and it was the Father who would receive Jesus at the conclusion of his mission. His faith was unshaken, and he trusted his soul into the good hands of the Father. And now, all of those who trust in Christ may do the same. 
You see, because Jesus has taken our judgment and has drank the full cup of God's wrath, we can commit ourselves to the only faithful guardian, God the Father, and experience the fullness of redemption. Those who put their trust in Christ can know that as we pass from this life to the next, we do so right into the loving hands of God the Father who is waiting to receive us into himself. It is finished. These weren't words of resignation. It wasn't an open-ended question. This wasn't just good advice. This was a declarative and triumphant statement. It is finished. What's finished? God's plan to rescue and redeem his people. That's finished. The righteousness that the law demands is now fulfilled. It's finished. The snake's head is finally crushed. He's finished. The price for our sin has been paid in full. It's finished. In fact, we hear three words in the English, but Jesus actually just said one word, tetelestai. It's a word that means paid in full. Tetelestai would have been stamped at the top of your loan statement after you've given your last payment on your very last bill. It means you don't owe on this anymore. It's been paid in full. There's nothing further you have to do. You are fully reconciled to the one to whom you owe the debt. So here in this death, Jesus actually tells us what's really good about his gospel. Why it's actually good news. He wants to free us from this unending demand of religion that says... You have to do enough to be loved. He said he wants to invite us into God's forever rest, the gospel that declares it's done because you're loved. And that's Jesus' invitation to you tonight. He wants to invite you into his forever rest. You can stop striving You can stop seeking. You can stop trying to do more to make yourself happy. You can stop feeling like you're not good enough, that you haven't done enough. God's final approval and his love is here because Jesus says, it's finished. That overwhelming feeling of doubt or debt, or like you owe someone something, Tetelestai. It's been paid in full. Finished. It's finished is the triumphant cry of Jesus, declaring that he's accomplished all that we could not accomplish on our own, but that's not all that it is. It's finished is an invitation to all of us to find true rest in Jesus, a forever rest. So weak and weary wanderer, come and find forever rest in Jesus tonight. He's paid it all. It is 